0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
1: Hey, hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Announcer man Don Morgan was absolutely correct. I'm Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell for episode number 130 of the podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Two terrific conversations on the program this week for you a little later on. Best-selling author Jonathan Lethem talks with us about his career and a little preview of his upcoming book, The Arrest. We get things underway, though, with a terrific conversation from a film editor, producer, and director Tom Zimney. An Emmy Award winner for his direction of Bruce Springsteen's Broadway show, Springsteen on Broadway, He's been collaborating with Bruce for a couple of decades now on video projects, and his newest documents the recording of Bruce's new album with the East Street Band, Letter to You. Here's our conversation with director Tom Zimney. Tom, thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Greetings. Oh, this is such a, a powerful documentary. I th- I've watched it three times now, and I'm a... I'm a blubbering mess each time I watch it. And <laughs> it's so beautiful, and um, the message is great, but so wonderfully shot and edited. And I want to ask about the decision, which which was great, to do it in black and white.
2: Well, first, thank you for sharing your experience with it. That's, that's wonderful to hear. I um, came to the place of deciding to use black and white the very first time I had a conversation with Bruce about this film, was uh, in New Jersey on a on a gray day, and he had mentioned the idea of some additional some filming, and that he was going to do some recording with the East Street Band for a week, and we sat outside and and had a brief discussion and listened to some Beatles and and he lit a fire and just chatted, but it was a gray day, and I remember thinking, it feels like a black and white day, <laughs> and started really thinking about Bruce in black and white and the band and, and ran with it from that point on.
1: And was that snowfall when you began filming like a gift from the gods?
2: It was absolutely a gift because the, the, in the documentary, there's one moment where Bruce looks out the window and and with the glee and excitement of a child says it's snowing, it's snowing. (laughs) And I knew right there that the snow in black and white could work for a visual metaphor for some of the themes that I was hearing in the music and that was reflection and time and just Bruce looking at his life in a certain way. And I, I thought, wow, we can leave the studio by by showing some hills of snow and 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 really built up that as a visual language. Um, and it worked really, it, it, I think it works great in black and white. It, it's a par- powerful contrast to the environment in the studio.
1: Well, for fans of Springsteen, or just anybody who wants to see the creative process, it's so wonderful to be there, well, as another musical has said, in the room where it happens.
2: It's amazing to watch these guys walk in the room, and there is something magical when Bruce opens that notebook, and minutes later, the E Street Band is now performing a new song, and it's like they've known it all their lives. They're just, it's 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 really hard to put into words and i hope the film conveys the energy and the excitement that these guys have just being together and creating it's it's definitely um for me is as exciting as being in the middle of the concert uh of an East street band concert this this unfolding of new songs and, and bruce working with the band as a band leader and the, the The spirit of these guys is great, but the secret language that they have in the studio is something that I really tried to capture by showing in documentary form them talking and looking at each other and express excitement there there's 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 forty years here of of a great music education, and I hope the film conveys that
1: well, and this was a different approach than than Bruce and the band have done in a while that he didn't come in with demos. But everybody had their notepads and that was so fascinating to watch that process of everybody taking down notes as they heard Bruce just Bruce and his guitar play those songs for the first time.
2: When you look at the notepads you see that the details that they're writing are a few chords and and indications of tempo few abstract notes The, the the really intense transition happens when they put the pencils down and then Roy Gets on the piano and you you all of a sudden hear something that that feels not only pure E Street but fits perfectly with the emotional um, connection of the of the song or the power of Max is playing was just phenomenal to capture in these sessions and and Stephen comes in with the guitar and all of a sudden you have all these ingredients coming together Nils and Charlie and Gary and you're in the world of E Street. And these guys are not sitting around saying, I'm going to play here and, and I'm going to, you know, a lot of it is happening and unfolding in the moment and and listening to each other play um, in the room. So it's it's a pretty magical thing from from number two pencils and legal pads to an E Street song in the universe. We're
1: talking with Tom Zimney about Bruce Springsteen's letter to you. It certainly felt this way to me. Uh, did it to you that the studio itself was like a character in this
2: story. You know, the studio I looked at exactly as that as a place and a being. It had to be represented in the film. Bruce came out with the song "House of a Thousand Guitars," and in many ways, I, I, I held on to that theme for the actual studio where they did the recording because it's is beautifully designed by Patty, and and light spills into this room. And it's on a farm, and it's on Bruce's property, and you just get this sense of East Street history when the light fills that studio. There's Danny's keyboard from the Born in the USA tour, and Clarence's saxophone case in the corner, and Bruce's first guitars where he started out with the Castilles. All all these instruments and all this environment really became uh, a character for me. And I would return to this space because I... I started to think about the light in the space as a healing light and these guys were creating in it. So you take on these little themes in your head as you're making the film and it helps talk to your cinematographer and, and, and work out a visual landscape.
1: Obviously Bruce has got that great shorthand with the band from all those years working together, but you've been working with Bruce for a couple of decades now. You must have a certain shorthand as well.
2: I I think the shorthand that I've developed with Bruce started And also with John Landau is the language that we got in the cutting room of trying to figure out how to make a concert out of the 2000 New York City concerts uh, that he had at Madison Square Garden. Right there, I started to have a a bit of a a dialogue that that in the past 20 years, working on music videos, documentaries and short films, it developed into a shorthand. So there is there is a. there is a space to step into this music, and he gives me that space by giving me the two number one elements that any filmmaker wants, which is time and trust. And by having those two things, I'm able to collaborate with him and, and really try to live within the music. I'm, I'm working off of the lyrics as, as a script, almost, emotionally. So I, I don't really stray too far outside of what I'm feeling towards the music. And with this album, there was such a strong sense of a spiritual sense and a reflection of the past, but being very caught up in the moment and now alive, alive as one of you know, as one of the choruses say in the songs, uh, "Song Ghost." Um, th- this was a band that it was at its top form, and and I wanted to get that across in the film. and And Bruce, in in my relationship with him and working on these films, he just always challenging me and, and and really throwing some interesting curveballs. Like, they're going to be there for a week. Let's go and just keep out of the way. How do you do that? Those kind of challenges. So he always makes it exciting.
1: Bruce's first band, the Castiles, in many ways, an, an impetus for these songs, and, and they're very much present because as much as this is a letter to the fans and the listeners, it's also a letter to his brothers and sisters in arms. And and they're a big part of it, and especially the notion of Bruce being the last man standing among the Castiles,
2: it, it was a powerful theme to look at in, in the lyrics of Last Man Standing, but also Ghost on how um, Bruce was looking at his history with his first band, but also the East Street band history and and some of the people that were lost in that journey. So I, I really tried to stay close to the voiceover and narration because it was a guiding force, on the visuals and the tone of the film. It's it's not behind the scenes, it's not traditional documentary, it's its own little strange hybrid of documentary forms and that comes from Bruce really working on narration and score in between the documentary scenes and creating this whole other type of film. Um, and it's not something that we're very verbal about, I think it's something we find in the cutting room and that to me is the magic. And in many ways, I saw that happen in the studio the same way. Well,
1: Clarence Clemens, Danny Federici, very much present in the film. And, and a big part of that, too, is the wonderful way you incorporated uh, archival footage, old stills, and they blend seamlessly with the band as they are today.
2: Thank you. I, I, I really spend a lot of time on choices of the archival footage. It's, I've, I've, I've never felt that anything is B-roll or a cutaway, everything matters in a cut. And you want to create this dream world that the viewer steps in. And for me, the dream world was E Street in the studio, but also looking back at at, at Bruce and the band at different eras and different times and and picking those shots out to represent that. It's really important to me. It means a lot to me. It, it's not just simply cutting to Bruce at a certain venue or just a cool shot. It has to carry the emotional tone and there has to be an expression in the archive that really demonstrates the ideas you're trying to get at.
1: I think my favorite moment in the film uh, comes as they're listening to the playback of uh, I'll see you in my dreams. It's just a very powerful emotional reaction that you were able to capture from John Landau.
2: You know, John Landau being Bruce's producer and manager for the past 40 years it's a man who's I, I've really um, learned so much from, but also have admired the relationship he has with Bruce um, for my past 20 years. So it, it was an amazing moment to see John become emotional during a playback. It for me, it was it was one of the most powerful things to to watch in the dailies, and, and I knew I wanted it in the film. And I also knew that. It would serve a purpose for the viewer to feel uh, a relief of of a lot of the emotions built in, because the film holds onto a lot of ideas that are, are emotional. So, in this documentary, to see John Lando uh, break down during a playback, it, it's it's it serves at many levels um, a deep cathartic uh, moment. I find it to be, and and it it, it gives service to to the narrative in, in, in a deep, deep way. And I'm just glad I was there to witness their, their connection and also um, the effects of, of these sessions and, and, and the power of those lyrics um, filling the
1: room. As I watched that scene, I, I flash back to an experience I had, a brief one, about well, 35 years ago as a, a young radio guy uh, working on a country station as a music director. And we played a couple songs from Born in the USA on our country station. And, and we were a reporting station to Billboard. And they did a little story on it, which was nice. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a package in the mail. And in it was a letter from John Landau thanking me for exposing Bruce to, to a new audience. And uh, in the box, uh, every vinyl that Bruce had recorded up to that point. And that, well, that still has a pretty cherished place in my household.
2: That's fabulous, and and it doesn't surprise me. I um I find, you know, John's commitment to my filmmaking, and and also just seeing it throughout the years of his work with Bruce, to be amazing, and just very inspirational, and and his understanding of all different types of uh, of, of music. I um recently worked on a film that'll be shown. Um, that it was a short film, but it was John's life, and it, it was a really powerful project to work on because I realized how much of an influence he's been on um, music writing and also just producing. The Besides other, the manager.
1: <laughs> the, the other uh, thing that was I, I thought so incredibly powerful and compelling uh, were, were the bits of narration that Bruce put together and in his closing narration I mean I I stopped I stopped watching because I wanted to write down the words because it was so powerful when he he says how you conduct yourself and do your work matters, how you treat your friends, your family, your lover. On good days, a blessing falls over you. It wraps its arms around you and you're free and deeply in and out of this world. It just, man, it says it all. And the visuals just take you to another place. It's, It's so, so moving.
2: Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's great to hear you're connecting to the film that way. And I really, I find that the voiceovers when I received them were, were really powerful. Um, I would receive them by text sometimes. And then in the morning, um, Bruce would record them. and And then by the afternoon, he was coming up with scoring ideas. And I was really trying to keep up with the pace of, of his writing and, and the beauty in those wor- those words and themes, and, and really found that the snow visuals worked so well because they conveyed a sense of a higher power and a spiritual presence without taking you to, down one particular road. They were open enough in feeling and that you could listen to Bruce closely and you could listen to the musical side of, of his delivery the music in his voice was really powerful and you know i i i think they're my favorite sections to work on and i think they're the hardest and with this film and the end of the film especially the voiceover really brought home a lot of ideas that both affected me as a filmmaker and as a a father and and, and a man so I, ho- I hope the viewer gets to step into that space and get a sense of their life and their journey and 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 enjoy the power of this great, great music. It's, it's just such an amazing album. And, um, it's so powerful to see these guys together and, and, and the story of, of making this record was a great gift, uh, for me in my 20th year.
1: Bruce says to the guys in the band, uh, late in the film, Something along the lines of "We're in it till we're in the box, boys." But was there a was there a sense at all of, of finality in this? Because we don't know if Bruce and the band will will be together at least in that form, recording an album again. Did you sense that
2: at all? I think there was an awareness of time in all the writing. I had no sense that this was like the last album, but I think the Bruce's lyrics definitely acknowledge um, that theme of of. Awareness, but this is also a bittersweet film because you see shots of the band hugging each other. You see the band talking about wanting to go on tour. There's a beauty here because it's pre-COVID, and 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 there's a lot of dreams of taking this music out there. So, um, I think we, when when you view the film, you you carry a little bit of of awareness of of those simple pleasures you can't engage in with friends and family so there was not a a finality t- in my impression as a filmmaker witnessing these scenes but i would have to say that an examination was going on in the lyrics and i think it's quite apparent in both the lyrics and the narration
1: bruce springsteen's letter to you a tremendous album and uh... This wonderful film that goes along with it, uh, Letter to You, the documentary, available on Apple Plus TV. So moving, so powerful, and uh, puts you right there in that room. And for Springsteen fans and and anybody who enjoys the process, uh, it's a remarkable look inside. Tom Zimney, I've enjoyed your work for a long time. Thank you so much for making time for
2: us. Absolutely. Anytime. And I really enjoyed your insights. Thanks for having me on. Tom
1: Zimney on Downtown, the podcast, talking about the... Tremendous documentary, Letter to You. We'll take a little break here. A word from our friends at Cross Insurance. When we come back, novelist Jonathan Lethem.
0: Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
2: The road is warm
1: And seeming without end The days go on I remember A little taste of the boss and his new album "Letter to You." Back on downtown, the podcast. Our next guest has been producing terrific novels for a couple of decades now, including classics like "Motherless Brooklyn," "The Fortress of Solitude." His new one is due out next week, called "The Arrest." We had the chance to talk with author Jonathan Lethem about his work as he was getting ready to participate in the uh, recent uh, online literary festival here in Blue Hill, Maine. Here's Jonathan Lethem on downtown.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to be in Maine, even remotely.
1: (laughs) Uh, Now, have you been riding out the pandemic at your place in Maine? Uh, I
0: wish. You know, early in the... I've I've never missed a summer in Blue Hill since I began spending time there. And uh, early in this... uh, quarantine. I, I had the thought that I should just hightail it for Maine right away because I was t- I'm beginning to teach remotely, so it, it didn't matter anywhere where the Zoom signal would work. But the logistics of crossing from California with my kids and their school and other kind of considerations just kept defeating this impulse, and I ended up staying here in the West all summer, which has been really actually kind of confusing for me to not to not get to the the East Coast. Um, for the first time.
1: Uh, You are uh, doing a lot to help out the Word Festival, including uh, donating one of your paintings. And and for people who don't (laughs) know, that was... That was the path in life when you headed off to, to Bennington was to be an artist, right?
0: Yeah. My father's a painter and actually was a, uh, until very recently a resident of of Maine. I just moved him out here to be with me in California. But he's a painter and has been uh, exhibiting at, you know, the Barn Gallery in Agunkwit and other places along the coast over the last decades. And I grew up uh, thinking I was going to be a, a fine artist. I, I made sculpture and i and paintings for a long time and went to college, you know, thinking that was what I, what I was meant to do.
1: And what put you on this different path, one that, that us readers are quite grateful for?
0: Well, I was always also a, a, a big reader and a, also, a, you know, kind of a fanatic for film and comic books and other narrative forms. And so I sort of, you know, as a uh, with the boundless energies of, of youth, I thought I wanted <laughs> to do all of it. And uh, you know, tell stories in some way. Paintings were exciting, and I was kind of good at it. It was fun to impress people with with my inherited gifts. But I really wanted to, to make, uh, make stories happen with characters and situations. And so I started to think, well, maybe I'll be a filmmaker or a, or a graphic novelist because that would employ my visual, uh, you know, talents or leanings um and then eventually i settled on just writing because i was also in love with language and and it it took me longer to learn to be good at it because i didn't i didn't have such a big head start but um but it's it's been completely uh lucky fate for me to to choose this path i have no complaints
1: now this original artwork that you've donated to the word festival i understand there's an interesting story and the inspiration for
0: that (laughs) yeah it's a great story so um I was um, uh, doing my usual rounds of uh, the the yard sales and the barn sales in Blue Hill and East Blue Hill on a Saturday morning, and um, uh, I I went into a a funky little sale right in the middle of my town, and there was this painting, uh, very enigmatic, egg (laughs) tempera. a painting of a water bird overlooking the, the, the landscape. And I kind of fell in love with it. And it, um, it turned out to have been painted by Julia Child's husband, uh, who, you know, he's um, a really interesting character because he was um, not only Julia Child's husband and, you know, uh, I think a very uh, uh, charming and, and sweet, devoted spouse and, and a, an amateur nature painter, but he was a spy. Uh, this guy, Paul, Paul child, um, worked for the, um, the, he was a diplomat, but he also worked for the OSS, I think. Mm. So I bought the painting and I hung it in my house and it became this sort of totemic object over the dining room table in, in my, at my house in Maine. And when the time came to, to make something to donate to the, uh, to the cause of the, the, um, word festival, uh, fundraiser. I, I, I thought maybe I'll paint a version of the, the Paul child painting, (laughs) but make it kind of conflate it with my novel. So I, I painted this bird over again, but it's perching on the, um, on the dashboard of this very, uh, futuristic car that's featured prominently in my new novel.
1: Well, let's talk about that. The arrest comes out November 10th. Um, I like what I've read about it so far, not pop post-apocalyptic, but, but certainly a world we're not quite used to or ready for.
0: Yeah, it's sort of a um, a post-collapse novel. I think I would put it that way. And it's a very gentle one. It's set in a time in the very near future when a lot of stuff that we're accustomed to just sort of very gently and enigmatically stops working. There's no email anymore and there's no gasoline for the cars and guns won't work and so everyone sort of settles into this very simplified existence and it's also a very local existence and the characters in my story are in a town in coastal Maine and you know what happens when you subtract so many of those kinds of technologies uh well it means that you know um first of all you don't know what's going on anywhere else so everything just becomes Mm. um you know uh, what is your neighbor doing? What's happening down the road? You know, you, as far as you can bicycle or ride a horse. Um, and then uh, the other thing that happens is that the, um, the organic farmers become the, the people who rule the world. So um, far from being um, uh, uh, a dystopia, this might actually, this book might exhibit a certain amount of wishful thinking on my part.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. When, after we were, uh, we were given the promise that the Internet would bring us all together as one big world, and uh, that hasn't played out so well.
0: How's that treating you? Yeah, Mm. Uh, well, you know, technology is uh, is a uh, is a funny story. You know, we're always idealizing the 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 next thing to come along, and and it's uh, the the you know, I lived in the Bay Area in the '80s when Wired magazine was new and the internet was sort of being invented, and the a degree of um, of of utopian. uh, fantasizing that went on around this, you know, the transformative, uh, capacities, it was just so out of control. Of course, there, there are a lot of things that are quite wonderful. And, and I spend, you know, a great deal of time on the, on the internet myself. And here we are talking remotely, you know, mm-hmm. we'd all depend on these things without even thinking about it now, or we do think about it, but it's, you know, they're integral. Um, so, you know, it's a very mixed
1: blessing. We're talking with Jonathan Lethem here on downtown. Jonathan kicks off the Word Festival this Friday night at 7 p.m. with novelist Kate Christensen. More information at wordfest.org, and you can call them as well at 374-5632. I could not talk with you without bringing up a book that remains one of my favorite books of all time. It's one that I regularly reread, and I'm sure you've heard this from a lot more people than me, but I absolutely adore the fortress of Solitude, and and I think that you know the, the friendship of of Mingus Rood and Dylan Ebdis is just one of the great friendships in all of fiction
0: oh well I'm really moved to hear you say it I I uh, of course poured a lot of my childhood uh, into that book not not a, not in terms of direct accounts it's not a memoir but the emotions and the the perplexities of my own coming of age in New York City are are, you know, on display in, in some cases in a very raw uh, f- uh, form in that book. And so it's a, it's a, you know, anytime you'd kind of tear your chest open and show your heart to the world uh, to have it, have it be recalled affectionately as you just did is, uh, means a tremendous amount. Uh, I still think about that book and, and the circumstances that, you know, led me to write it all the time.
1: You never know what's going to happen when Hollywood gets its hands on a book of yours. And uh, uh, sometimes authors are happy, sometimes disappointed. But I thought Motherless Brooklyn was, was a wonderful film and, and was certainly uh, largely faithful to the novel. What were your impressions of the book and the performance of uh, the movie and the performances?
0: Well, I was just, you know, astounded that it happened at all. The book had been optioned when it first came out. And we're talking about. 1999, and I'd grown so accustomed to it being just a a postulated thing, you know, a film that was never going to exist. And so, um, I, you know, there's a part of me that's still in disbelief. You know, I was invited to the set one day, and I was watching the actors, uh, you know, put on the, the, a, a version of a scene from my book. And I, I even then, I felt this isn't really occurring. This, this, <laughs> no, there's no way there's going to be a film. Um, but it's been an extraordinary experience for me you know the the vision that edward norton had he was the director and the writer as well as the star of the film was so much his own he really made an artifact that stands next to the book and has its own qualities and its own um its own emphasis and he was he was he turned it into a vehicle for thoughts he had about the the gentrification of new york city and the and the you know war with Robert Moses and 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 developers and and urban renewal and it turned into something very timely I think it's kind of lucky in a way that he couldn't make it for so long because by the time it came out it had a relevancy that it 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 couldn't have had uh back when I wrote the book
1: all right, away from riding for a moment. World Series begins tonight. My Red Sox not there. Your Mets not there. But uh, is this heading in a positive direction for the Mets, getting the team away from the Wilpons?
0: Well, you, but you're showing real inside uh, uh, Mets knowledge. Yeah, everyone <laughs> is feeling this extraordinary uh, relief that that um, you know we've we've gone from uh, you know um, the sort of uh, hopeless ownership to this. Apparent free spender who, you know, I mean, here the Dodgers are in the series for the, what is it, the fourth time in five years mm-hmm. or something like that. And that's the model, right? Uh, we're meant to be a big market team for better or worse. So, you know, look out, we'll be the ones stealing the the next Mookie bets away from the Red Sox if we're, if, we're, if we're lucky.
1: <laughs> and I have to ask you this because you've written about him so eloquently. What did you think about the new Dylan album?
0: I'm, I'm, I adore the new Dylan album. I think it's really a, a marvel and, um, you know, how, how, how many gifts he's given us over the years. It's, it's so, it's so, uh, strange that there can be another chapter. I, I, I was ready to, you know, I, I wasn't really, I didn't, you know, I didn't object to it, but I wasn't getting, um, a huge amount out of the sort of the, the Frank Sinatra years, we Mm. can call them. Um, (laughs) And, and that was okay. You know, he, he, his, his, his creativity has been volcanic and it's uh, provided us with so much over so many decades. If he was more or less done writing songs that, that could be okay, you know, but, um, but I think this, this current record is, is really a wonder. It, it shows dimensions and, uh, you know, um, ideas that are, that are brand new. It also, you know, it, 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 it expresses one of the things that I always think is characteristic of some of the very best of Dylan's work, which is that it's it's funny. It's his sense of humor mm. is alive, and um, oh, you know, let me be anything like this uh, in in contact with my own uh, creative impulses and and powers when I'm his age. What a what a example he sets.
1: The new novel, The Arrest comes out on November 10th. Can't wait to read that. And uh, Jonathan, it's been great to talk with you. Been a fan of your work for a long, long time. Appreciate you making time for us this afternoon.
0: Thanks so much, Rich.
1: Novelist Jonathan Lethem on Downtown, the podcast. Our thanks to Jonathan, as well as director Tom Zimney. And of course, thanks to you for joining us this week. Uh, Leave a nice review if you'd be so kind. Subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. Maybe even tell those people you're on the fence about. It might swing them to the right side. Either way it would be appreciated. And uh, we hope you'll join us next time here on Downtown the Podcast.